we gather to hear you speak to us from heaven and our Lord Jesus Christ to hear your voice as our great shepherd, the great shepherd of your sheep, and we are your sheep, and we want to hear when our shepherd speaks so that we can, by your grace, follow you where you lead and strengthen us in doing that. And, and we know that you do strengthen us uh, as we gather together and as we hear together and as we encourage one another together to live a life of faithfulness to you. And so as we open your word, we do pray, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us, exalt Christ in us, and better enable us to live for his glory. And it is in the name of the Lord Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. And before we uh, begin, let me just make a, a couple of quick notes. Or one, uh, the books are in the final order uh, for the, uh, the book study that will, discussion that will begin soon. What about evil? So uh, if you haven't got a book yet and you want to join us with that, there are two other copies that will be available in the bookstore. If you've already purchased your book, it's also available. There's a few there that have already been paid for but not picked up yet. Uh, so go ahead and do that. And I'm, I'm really excited to do that, and especially uh, just for what it is in itself, the, uh, the, the topic and the, the uh, skill at which this author uh, brings it before us to the glory of God, uh, and how much it fits with uh, the message of Revelation and our need to have a right view of God and his working and who he is in light of uh, a world that stands in uh, rejection to him. Well, with that said, we uh, began last week our, look at the, our first look at the message of the risen Christ to the churches, to the seven churches, and that forms the content of the next couple of chapters. And we begin last week with looking at the church at Ephesus, the church at Ephesus, and in doing so, we looked at the Lord's both commendation and his correction, his exhortation uh, to them, namely related to their lack of a sincere love for him, the kind of love that honors him and a kind of love that reflects the tenderness of the gospel uh, in their own heart. And in doing so, I, I mentioned that we would pull the car over to the side of the road and look at a topic that's brought up in his address to the church. And namely, it is the topic of legalism and love. And how do we discern in our hearts uh, a legalistic heart and a heart that is operating out of a spirit-produced love for Christ? And that is a very important uh, need for us to discern, both individually and as a church. There, there's always a tendency, and this is historical, we could certainly put it into contemporary examples, but it's throughout the, the history of the church, to veer on one side of the other. That is the very issue that Paul was addressing in Romans chapter 6, after explaining, as he did at the very heart of his ministry, the overwhelming and the comprehensive nature of the grace of God, that it is complete, that there is nothing to offer, that Christ has accomplished for us righteousness, it is totally in him, Some abuse that message and they take it to what is titled or has been titled antinomianism or against law and that is to say that law then has no bearing on the life of a Christian that a Christian can live because of the free grace of God any way that they want and their salvation is secure and that comes under a variety of different arguments but that's at the heart of it and Paul had to say no may it never be 
that you've missed the point. And then there are others who are so concerned about that danger as well that rather than going down the road of just saying, well, nothing matters, we have freedom to sin and it doesn't really affect our salvation, they go and say, no, we need to restrain that freedom by law. We need to implement strict law measures so that we will not sin and so that we can, in fact, be saved or we can, in fact, increase in our confidence of God's love for us. And so you have two sides of it, to go down the side of antinomianism or licentiousness or to go down the road of law and of legalism. Those have plagued the church and the Christian church in a variety of ways uh, throughout her history and then really the history of God's people. And so these are big issues and, and that is what is brought up or at least implied here even in the message of Christ to the church. And so we want to take a little bit of time Uh, this week and next week to look at this issue. So let's begin, however, by reminding ourselves of his message to the church in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and then we'll uh, swing back around and look at this issue more closely. So begin with uh, verse 1 of Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen Fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. And yet this you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Now, the essence of his point, of his rebuke here to this church at Ephesus is to say that you have many things externally for which I can commend you, but you're missing the main thing, the first love, the first love. And this is an extremely striking message and an extremely striking rebuke because it is so unexpected as you read the letter as you read his opening statements to this body of believers. It comes, as it were, out of left field. And it's not merely a like rebuke, as we noted. It's not a mild exhortation. It's not Paul saying to the Thessalonian church, excel still more. He says, no, this is of such a nature that I will remove your lampstand from you. It is of such a nature that it calls not for just doing better, but for actual repentance. Repentance toward Christ. And... So it's extremely important uh, to get this right and to be clear. For by every measure, if Christ did not give this warning to us, if Christ did not give this warning to the church at Ephesus, we would have thought that this was in every way a model church, in every way a church that we wanted to be like, in every way an example of what it means to follow Christ and to be faithful to him. We would thought this to have been nearly a perfect church, one that would receive only 
a reward, but not a warning. But in fact, it is a warning that Christ gives to them and through them to us. And the issue that really forms the heart of this warning is this, is that it is possible to be very active and to be very committed to the things of the Lord while not actually loving him. While not actually loving him. And so that brings up then the larger issue, the issue of, of legalism and love, of legalism and love. And we'll, we'll talk a bit about that. Let me just tell you what the plan is for this week and next. So this week I want to just introduce that and set a context for the issues of legalism and love, both defining them and giving the biblical theological issues related to salvation, namely justification and sanctification, and then the law and love and how those things connect together and how legalism can creep in. And then next way we'll look at very practical ways walking through scripture of how to discern that in our own hearts. What are the fruits? of each that help us know uh, what's going on in our own hearts. Well, let me begin, however, simply by uh, defining the terms and give, just giving basic definitions of the terms and, and what is meant uh, by legalism and even what is meant by love. Legalism is defined, if you were just to look it up, as excessive adherence to law or formula. That's a good basic definition, but within a Christian understanding, the, the term applies more generally to this. Anyone who views his or her personal obedience as the means of favor or standing with God. That's a way to put it. Anybody who views personal obedience, that's the legal nature, as a means of attaining a standing with God or gaining in some way the love and the pleasure of God or the good graces of God. It is usually marked by an overemphasis on the external and an underemphasis on the heart, and those are things that will come out as we go along. Now, in saying this, in defining first legalist, there are two general camps of a legalist. There is what uh, you would call a theological or doctrinal legalist, and then a cultural or a religious kind of legalist. Uh, first, a theological legalism. Uh, this is a legalism that explicitly, and that's a key term, explicitly rests in personal adherence to the law or obedience as the grounds of being accepted by God. It views salvation in some measure as dependent upon human obedience, doing something. That is the, a theological kind of legalism. Uh, this is every religion, really, apart from the true gospel of Jesus Christ. But it is even the religion of Israel and the Jews that Jesus confronted. Romans 10, 3-4 says this. Let me just read it for you. Not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The key phrase there is they were seeking to establish their own. We'll come back to this, but you remember the parable that Jesus gave in Luke 18 where there was the Pharisee praying in the temple and he says who, he gave this parable for those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That they trusted in themselves that they were righteous. This covers not only Judaism as apostate Judaism, but many churches today, the Church of Christ uh, falls into this category who trust that baptism is a necessary part of attaining salvation. You must be baptized. It's Seventh-day Adventists. Many of them fall into a very legalistic understanding. Not, not all. There are some that are Christians, but that is common. The Roman Catholic Church, of course, is one of the greatest examples 
uh, because they're going to confuse what we'll look at in just a bit, the relationship between justification and sanctification. Uh, And again, as I noted, it's every religion. It is the default religion. It is the default response of man to God is to have our own righteousness. Every single religion in the world outside of a true understanding of the gospel says that God will accept me because I do this, because of this about me. The way it's often been said, and it's a kind of a pithy, helpful way to say it, is that there are two religions in the world, if you were to break them down at their essence, it is the religion of human accomplishment or divine achievement. Human accomplishment or divine achievement. In other words, it's what a human can accomplish on his own to bring himself into a place of grace or favor with God, however that's defined, or of divine accomplishment, completely, totally, absolutely, comprehensively what God has done for the sinner in Christ. Those are the only two options. But then there's a cultural or religious kind of legalism as well. And this is a kind of legalism that confesses the right doctrine of faith in Christ alone, but it places an undue emphasis on external conformity to personal or community standards as the mark of holiness and fellowship. In other words, it might confess the gospel of grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, However, at its core and in the way that it actually works out, there is an overemphasis on doing and on works. This can creep up again in very subtle ways. Uh, not in, let me just say, on, on works as a means of demonstrating uh, holiness or acceptance with God or fellowship with one another. Now, I'm going to explain that, but let me just give you one example of what I mean, one you're familiar with, Romans 14, verses 1 through 4. Now, he's writing to Christians here. These are Christians. He's not doubting their salvation. These aren't uh, those addressed in Romans chapter 10 and other places. He's writing to Christians. He says, except the one who is weak in faith, not for passing judgment on his opinions. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And he begins that section there in Romans 1 by saying he told that he's addressing those who are viewing others with contempt within the church. Why? Because they're not meeting a personal standard. Christians, he's talking about Christians viewing each other with contempt because of differently held convictions related to how one honors God. And so legalism can show up even in the context of pursuing worship. Even in the context of pursuing worship. And it can show up in other ways too. It can show up in the secret attitude towards God and salvation, especially as it affects assurance and joy. Uh, It can show up in this kind of attitude within the Christian If I do better, God will love me more. If I fail, God will love me less. We're going to unfold these, but that is a common attitude. If I do better, God will love me more, and if I fail, God will love me less. In other words, that's a relationship with God on a legal attitude, a legal basis, that God's relationship with me is based on my performance. So when I do good, I have, in one sense, myself to thank, and I can have all of the blessings of God, and if I fail and struggle, then God is going to cut me off. That's a legalistic attitude. It's a legalistic relationship with God, and it produces anxiety and not true obedience. It produces fear and not true obedience. It misses the reality that true obedience and joy for the Christian comes from the reality of God's love for his own that is eternal and secure. In other words, Christian obedience is because of God's love to us in Christ, not to gain it or to earn it. 
And that is a key distinction. So now, though, while there is some difference between the two, a cultural and a legal uh, or a theological kind of legalist, it lies, the difference lies mainly in the degree to which one is consciously resting on works as, as the means of being accepted or approved by God. However, there is far more similarity between these, for both flow from the same source, a failure to understand grace, which implies then a failure to understand the very nature of God and the full reality of personal sin and the work of God in Christ. In short, both of those forms of legalism are based on this root issue. You probably know, self-righteousness. It's based on self-righteousness. And that is always going to fail. The core of legalism then is a self-righteous heart, someone who finds security and rest in his or her own righteousness rather than despising any sense of personal righteousness and self and receiving completely and fully God's grace of righteousness in Christ. Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification. Our righteousness, our sanctification, our wisdom are completely, fully, totally, wholly, 100% bound in Christ alone. Now, what about love? So that's just the definition, essentially. Uh, What about love? What is meant by love? Well, there's a variety of ways that Scripture describes love, uh, and there's a variety of ways that our culture talks about and describes love, but the way it's going to be used here and in in our intention and uh, reflecting Christ's message to the church is I'm going to refer to it strictly as that spirit-produced response to God because of the gospel And that overflows then in our response to other believers. It is the effect of a believer's relationship to Christ and to others that it is the response of loving trust and obedience to God. It is the first love that was being neglected by the Ephesian church. So let me just give a passage uh, that can relate to this. In 1 John four twenty through 21, let me read it to you. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has seen. And this is the commandment that we have from him. The one who loves God should love his brother also. And he it said earlier in that passage that it's not that we loved God first, but that he loved us. That the very nature of God consists of love. That's not the totality of it, but is at the essence and core of it for God is love and so he says love then is a is a key marker of what it means to be in Christ and this love is going to be manifest in a love for God and a love for God is going to have a necessary fruit of love for his people that you can't separate those two things and again I think that's at the core of what he's getting at when he says go back to your first works but we'll come back to that uh, in his message to the Ephesians So the core of biblical love then is a humble response of obedient love to God that flows from a work of the Spirit who reveals within the sinner the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let me just say that one more time. The core of biblical love is a humble response of obedient love to God that flows from a work of the Spirit who reveals within the sinner the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. One beautifully captured that and said, it's an inward knowledge of his beauty and glory that transforms the heart. An inward knowledge of his beauty and glory that transforms the heart. 
So legalism and love then represent two very different, even opposite heart realities and motivations for service, even very different understandings of the nature of God, of Christ, and self. Now then, this brings us to another aspect of salvation that's important to grasp as we consider this topic, and that is how do these things relate to salvation? How does legalism and love relate to salvation? in the fullness or in a more comprehensive sense of understanding salvation. Well, let me just say this, that the issue can be difficult. The issue can be difficult. For on the surface, there's very much that looks the same, and we are called in Scripture to pursue holiness as a necessary evidence of the saving work of grace in our heart. Genuine salvation includes necessarily obedience It's not the one, John says in 1 John 2, who says, I have come to know him, but the one, can you finish it, who keeps his commandments, the one who shows an obedient direction of life. Every regenerate believer must show some desire for holiness and should pursue it. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, 15, without holiness or without sanctification, no one will see the Lord. So it's necessary to have a measure of evident fruit for of a desire for holiness in a believer's life or there's no reason to be confident of salvation and moreover scripture tells us repeatedly that we are to confront one another for sin that when there are sins or patterns of sin that have that are destructive in a person's life or destructive to the unity of the community of faith or destructive to the testimony of Christ we are to come alongside one another as a body even in church discipline if it gets to that level and confront it and we are individually to be involved in one another's lives in such a way that we point out sin and lead towards righteousness and exhort one another to obedience. And so there are those commands and yet it gets then very hard sometimes on the surface to discern them between what is a legalistic expression of those things and what is an expression of love. Well, let me just say that in order to discern that, we have to be clear on a couple of larger issues. One is, as I mentioned earlier, the relationship between justification and sanctification and the relationship of law and love in a Christian's life. And that's mostly what I want to address here uh, in setting a context. And again, next week we'll look at very specific ways and how we can discern that in our own hearts. Uh, Let me begin by looking at legalism as it relates to the idea then of sanctification and law beginning with justification and sanctification. And so again, let me begin by just defining terms here. What do we mean by justification? Justification most simply could be described in this way, a legal declaration of righteousness based on the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ granted to a believer through faith or by faith through the instrumentality of faith. Romans 3.28 says this, for we maintain that a man is justified, counted righteous, righteousfied, you could say, uh, by faith apart from the works of the law. When we talk about justification, we're talking about being declared righteous. It is a legal declaration by God based on Christ. It is a righteousness that is outside of us. It is bound up in Christ who is in the presence of God for us. It is, the reformers used to call it, an alien righteousness. It's not our own, it's something outside of us. That is justification. 
It's the righteousness of Christ credited to us, the believer, on account of the righteousness of Christ, and it's credited through faith. Again, it's something that happens outside of us, and it is the core of the gospel truth rescued in the Reformation. That is the core of the gospel truth of, that was rescued through the Reformation and given back to the church, that a sinner is justified not through the mediation of the church, not through participation in the Eucharist, not through the sacraments, not through the priesthood, but our righteousness is completely bound up in Christ and in Christ alone. And it is a completed righteousness. It is a total righteousness. There is nothing to add to that righteousness. He has fulfilled everything the law requires from us as those bearing God's image. He has done it for us and we are completely accepted on the righteousness of Christ. That was rescued. That was the doctrine of justification by faith. However, the first of Luther's 95 theses stated this, that the Christian life is a life of continual repentance, of continual repentance. In fact, his first theses was this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And so justification by faith alone, understanding that our righteousness is completely bound in Christ, it is outside of us, it is in Christ, does not negate an obedient life and the life of obedience. And this is important to understand. And this is true because true faith is inseparable from repentance, turning from sin to self to Christ. They're one and the same. They're two sides of the same coin. They're cut from the same cloth. That's throughout Scripture, most commonly in James chapter 2. You can't say that you have faith and not have any works at all, or that faith is a dead faith. That the completion of faith in terms of its evidence is that it moves to obedience and to works. So, there we are. Faith and repentance and faith and works, while distinct, the faith that unites us to Christ is a faith that will also demonstrate a desire to walk with Christ in obedience. However, there's even more that goes on in salvation. Salvation includes the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. A sinner must be born again. They must be brought from death to life, from spiritual darkness to spiritual light. In fact, Scripture describes the dead sinner as being made a new creation, a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. All things have become new then for one who's been born again. That means new desires, new longings for Christ, new longings for holiness, new longings for truth. That means a life that is empowered and compelled by the inward work of the Spirit to obedience. In short, then, that's simply to say that justification, then, cannot be separated from sanctification. Well, that's our second term, and then really the main idea I want to focus on. What is sanctification, and how does it relate to this? Well, sanctification comes from a root word I, you're familiar with, but it has a common idea, the, the common idea set apart, but the idea of sanctification, it often translated holy, or holiness, or sanctification, different forms of the word, but it has the idea of set apart unto God. It's something that's made sacred. It has a, uh, an idea of consecration, consecration to the Lord for his service, to his purposes, consecration to him. In scripture, there are three kinds of, or three ways that sanctification is talked about. 
because uh, uh, you know, you love alliterations. So there is a past sanctification. So you have been sanctified. We read that in 1 Corinthians 1 and, and other places. You have been sanctified. That's a position. In other words, your position now has been set apart from the world to Christ. Christ talked about that in John 17. I have sanctified myself so that they could be sanctified. He's set apart, and we are in him, so we are set apart from the world. So in the New Testament, when you read saints, if you have a reference Bible, you'll see sometimes a little reference note, and you look in the margin, and it'll say holy ones. That means a holy one. That's positional sanctification. You are now holy in Christ. You aren't holy personally. Uh, Hopefully you're growing, but you're a long way from it, as am I. But before God, you are sanctified positionally, set apart to Christ if you are a believer and you are counted a saint and a holy one before him. You can think of the most wonderful uh, example of that because it's an example by contrast is in 1 Corinthians. Don't turn there. But he's writing, as you know, Corinthians, he's writing mostly to deal with problems. Uh, But he says to them, he calls them, even at the very beginning of the letter, that they are saints, that they are saints who have been set apart for the purposes of God. He says in verse 2, to those who are in Corinth, who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. That's positional sanctification. Secondly, there is progressive sanctification. And that is, in Scripture, referred to those who are being sanctified. Hebrews chapter 10, for example. Those who are being sanctified. Uh, Let me just read that verse. He says in Hebrews 10, for example, um, uh, verse 10, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on, he having offered for one time the sacrifice for sins. Uh, In verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. That's actually those who are being sanctified. Those who are being sanctified right now in the process of, of being set apart from sin unto Christ. And then there's a third, a perfected view. And that is that ultimate end. That is when our position is matched with the reality of the resurrection glory. And that is when we are conformed to the image of the body of Christ, or to the heavenly body of Christ, his resurrection body. And that's, it's all done at that point. It's over, we made it. And the victory has been won and is fully realized in Christ. But now in between our position and what, we, what Christ has done for us and what we will be in the future is this idea of progressive sanctification. It's the link between our position and our future perfection in Christ. And the key to this sanctification is being in Christ. It's being in union with Christ. That's what we read about in Romans chapter 6, right? If we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. And he who is raised from the dead and lives his life to God, so we too, I'm paraphrasing somewhat, walk in newness of life. Because we are united with him. In chapter 8, he's going to emphasize that as the work of the Spirit. But we are united to Christ. And it is that union with Christ that then becomes the fuel of our ongoing growth in Christ through the ministry of the Spirit. Now, these are all going to hopefully come to bear on this topic here of legalism. So let me just say that sanctification then is the Spirit's work within the regenerate sinner making them more like Christ in thought attitude and deed and the spirit does this by revealing the glory of christ in scripture 
2 Corinthians 4, 6, he's shown in our heart to reveal the, the glory of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He opposes remaining sin. Galatians 5, the spirit sets his desire against the flesh, the flesh against the spirit, so that you cannot do the things that you please. There's an opposition, spirit-empowered opposition against sin within the heart of every believer. If you don't have that opposition, then there's reason to question the, the most concerning thing, this is just a footnote for someone, is not that they sin, it's the attitude towards sin. Those who sin with impunity and lack of concern, there's great you know, concern for their salvation. Those who sin and fight it and are miserable because of sin, well, there's hope. <laughs> there's the gospel. And welcome to the Christian life. Uh, that's what it is. Uh, and the Spirit works both prompting and enabling us towards righteousness. Now, what is the importance of understanding these things? That's just a very general overview. Why is that important in understanding this uh, in light of legalism and relating to God through a legalistic attitude? Well, let me say this. Sanctification concerns the whole person. The whole person, the whole character being conformed to Christ. So our mind, our affections, and our wills. To put more simply, what we think, what we love, and what we do. Sanctification affects all of, all of those things. And here is the key then in saying that. Sanctification has less to do with external behavior, though it includes that, and more to do with the internal transformation of the heart. The inner affections that grow in love for Christ because of an increasing understanding of his glory and God's grace in Christ, his love in Christ. So in other words, it's possible then to have an increase of external obedience while never actually killing the love for sin in the heart. That's not sanctification. That's externalism. That's legalism. That is a, a, an outward obedience that has no reflection in and of itself of genuine salvation. Growth in Christ is not that we only sin less, it's that we hate sin more. It's not that we simply do less acts of outward disobedience. It is that in the heart, we love that sin less. That's real sanctification. It's something that, now that's going to show up externally, but the external is not the true heart of sanctification. Peter said this in 2 Peter uh, 3.18. Hold on, I just went past it. He says this, Uh, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in the grace and the fullness of understanding that grace and the, the evidence of that grace and the knowledge of him in the fullness of his glory and his gracious love. So sanctification is manifest primarily in this, in a growing desire to please Christ because of his gracious love. It is a growing love for the things he loves and a growing hatred for the things that he hates, not merely outside of us, but inside of us. That's when sin is being put to death. And that's absolutely crucial to understand because legalism and a legalistic heart looks at maturity and spirituality primarily in terms of what a person does or does not do. I am mature and I'm holy because I don't do this and I do do this. Therefore, I am mature. Therefore, I am holy. Therefore, I am walking in righteousness. And you can see how that can be a slippery slope because in one sense, it is a matter of what we do, but it misses the main point. It doesn't understand sanctification. It doesn't understand that connection between justification and what it means to grow in Christ, to be a regenerate believer, to have the ongoing indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit and what exactly he's conforming us to. 
It misses all of that, and it simply relates it to I do do this and I don't do that. Now, we're going to get more into this later, but that was exactly what Jesus was dealing with, wasn't it? You look great on the outside. Fantastic. As a matter of fact, he begins Matthew 23 by saying, hey, what they tell you to do, sitting in the chair of Moses, do that, in as much as it conforms with the commands of Moses. But then he says, you're like whitewashed tombs. In the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. And sometimes, in sanctification, we can wonder why we struggle. And it's because we're trying to fight sanctification by putting in more discipline, try harder, do harder. And yet, we're never actually dealing with the love for that sin in our heart. We're never actually killing the desire for that sin. And so we're not growing in and you end in a perpetual state of frustration. But that's not, that's, it's really, it's a theological understanding of what is sanctification. So sanctification actually then is marked more by who we are becoming, who we are becoming, the kind of person we're coming in our character and in our inward life. That's at the core of sanctification. That's what the Spirit is doing. I am becoming, the sanctified person would say, I am becoming less and less confident in myself and more and more resting in God's grace in Christ. I'm growing in my affections for Christ. I see those things happening. I'm growing in my affections for the things of holiness. So true sanctification, again, is happening not merely by sinning indeed less, but loving sin less and holiness more. It, it, it dresses the very heart of what Jesus called us to. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's the order. You love me, and then comes obedience. So sanctification, in somewhat paradoxically, is happening when, with a growing sense of our sinfulness, we trust in ourselves and our works less and less. As a matter of fact, as a Christian grows, and they're actually growing in sanctification, they see more and more of the corruption that remains in them. They see more and more of the futility of their works in earning or gaining anything from God, and you more and more rest in the person of Christ. The, the, again, the, the often... Uh, you know, stated example of that is when certain when those accounts when some men have come into the presence of Christ and immediately are aware of their sinfulness. Uh, Isaiah is sort of the epitome of all of that. The righteous prophet of Israel in the presence of God and he says, woe to me, you know, curse me, damn me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Why? Because he was in the presence of God. Well, that's, that's an, a, sort of an extreme illustration of how sanctification works. You come into the presence of God and you realize more and more I am nothing, he is everything, and you depend on the grace of God. And paradoxically, the more you rely less and less on your works, the more it produces obedience, (laughs) actual obedience in the life of a growing and maturing and being sanctified saint. Legalism goes in the other direction. Well, let me just note, one way to illustrate that is our glorified state. When we're in a glorified state, uh, there's no more threat of sin. There's no more, it's a perfect worship to God. There's, we're not a threat, the, our union with Christ comes to its fullest fruition, and there's no longer the threat of sin outside of us or inside of us. And so that's what we're growing towards, right? We're growing towards the end to which we've been saved, laying hold of that for which we have been laid hold of, Paul said, and that is to, to that state. But a legalistic heart uh, doesn't uh, look at it in that way. Again, it's merely external, and it can show up in a variety of ways. It can show up in a variety of ways. Well, I want to move on. We'll come back to some of these things. But let me just note this, that this is important to understand because legalism and the pursuit of holiness are not equals. They're not equals. 
All right, legalism flows from the fount of self-righteousness that is resting on those doing, that is resting on the works to be pleasing to God, to receive God's blessing, to be um, accepted by him in some way. And true sanctification, the true pursuit of holiness is flowing more and more of a grasp of the love that has been shown for us in the gospel. More and more a grasp of the love of Christ because of his mercy, because of his kindness to us. Now, this brings up another issue. Um, and this is what I want to address here. And this issue is then the relationship of law to the Christian life, the relationship of law and obedience to the Christian life. So justification and sanctification was one lens. This is another lens. And it's really through this lens of law, law and love. This is a common area of confusion in the relationship between uh, law and the new covenant believer. And that is a ongoing discussion let me just mention this we're not going to spend time on it but much of this discussion particularly within those who uh, are in the reformed uh, uh, reformed faith if I'm better way lack of a better way to put it uh, and it and it relates to what is sometimes described as and again I'm not going to go down here but I'm going to mention it is Calvin's third use of the law so Calvin had noted three uses of the law to the new covenant believer. The first was condemning sin. The law condemns sin. It exposes sin and it condemns it. The second use of the law, according to the, his three uses, was that the law restrains sin. So it condemns sin. That's Romans chapter three through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Uh, it restrains sins. That's Galatians. Wait, Romans chapter 3, and then Galatians chapter 3, the law came in as a tutor to lead us to Christ so that salvation could only be in Christ. And then he had a third use, and the third use, and this is a part where the discussion comes on, is that the law plays a role in the believer's life as a moral guide, as a moral guide. And that's based on also a separation in the law or distinctions in the law made between uh, the ceremonial law, and that had to do with the, the worship aspects, the, the temple cultist aspects, uh, the civil law, the way justice was manifested or worked out within the civil life and such, and, the, and eventually the monarchy within the nation of Israel, uh, and then the moral law, which would be like the Ten Commandments for example, all of which, by the way, are repeated in the New Testament in command form except for the Sabbath, except for the Sabbath. Now, that being said, what then is the relationship of the law to the believer's life? And the, the difficulty comes in here in this aspect of it is because he, he says uh, repeatedly the New Testament calls us to or reminds us that the law uh, is only meant for sinners, those who are outside of Christ, to bring them to conviction of sin. So Paul says that in 1 Timothy 1. The law was made for who? The immoral person, the unrighteous person, and the endless sins. In other words, so the law does have that aspect. And the law does restrain sin, in a sense. It certainly did in the life of Israel, and there are uh, moral aspects to it. But the law has been fulfilled in Christ, right? So that's what we read in Romans chapter 3, 28. Uh, there, is no, there is no mosaic law authority on a believer, right? So then how are we to understand the relationship of the law? And particularly, how are we to understand it when the language of law is actually used in the New Testament? So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 that he, when he's ministering about with those who are not under law, so Gentiles who, there's, who aren't under the Mosaic law, he says, but if you remember, I am not without the law of Christ. I'm under the law of Christ. He says the same thing in Galatians chapter 2. He says that we bear one another's burdens and he, and he relates that and he connects that to the law of Christ, that we're under the law of Christ. 
So what does he mean by that? He's using the language of law. Well, let me just summarize it in this way. The key idea of the statement, the law of Christ, is this, that the internal constraint to obedience to God is through the convicting and empowering ministry of the Spirit within the believer. It is the believer's obligation to every command of Christ under whose lordship we live. All of his commands for holiness and love for the brethren. So that's the idea of the law of Christ. It is that inward sense of moral obligations to the commands of the Lord Jesus Christ that are on the believer. And that goes with them no matter where they are. That was Paul's point. Whether I'm among the Gentiles, whether I'm among Jews, I'm always under that law of Christ that, uh, through the ministry of the Spirit. Uh, and as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5.14, no matter where he goes, the love of Christ controls us. They're probably best understood as a grasp of the love of Christ for us, but really there's not so much of a sharp distinction uh, because that of Christ statement, that love of Christ, just as much returns back to him in grasping his love and an obedient love to him. So both, both parts are there, but probably the main idea there, uh, to be specific, is the grasping of the love of Christ for us. But that means this then, that Paul is driven in his ministry and constrained to the loss of himself in service to Christ and his church because of the great love Christ showed to him in laying down his life for him. Now, so the language of law is used, but it's not in the mosaic sense. It's not in that thundering command from Sinai with all of its detail and distinctions and so forth. It is that inward constraint to obedience. Now there's a lot to say that, but let's just leave it there. Uh, let me make one other aspect here, and this is uh, where I want to get to. And that is this. However, to really understand how subtle legalism can be in the human heart, how subtle it can be in twisting and separating God's commands from his gracious covenant love, um, I think it might be helpful then to see how the attitude that we see in the Gospels, that legalistic spirit that Christ was continually confronting, came to take place, came about, and how Christ specifically addressed it, which is going to be, I think, and I hope, very instructive for us and helpful for us. So to do that, let me again just give a brief overview, make some, some general comments in, in looking at the, the, the flow of biblical history that takes us into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, ministry, the record of the ministry of Christ. First of all, let me begin by saying this, that God made a covenant with Abraham by sovereign grace. Abraham was a pagan. He was an idol worshiper. God entered into covenant with him in Genesis chapter 12 by a sovereign act of grace. He called Abraham out of the land of Ur. He made a promise to him that would be a foundational promise for eventually uh, the, the forming of the nation of Israel and his relationship to them. It was a covenant of sovereign grace. It was by his sovereign love. And again, it established his relationship with Israel. When he formed Israel into a nation in the land of Egypt, as he said he was going to do, and then he rescued her from the slavery and the bondage that she was in within Egypt, he did so as a result of sovereign love and grace. He reminded them in Deuteronomy, you were the least of all of the nations. There was no reason for me to choose you. I did so for my own choice, my own sovereign purposes. And the reality is, that Israel was no more deserving of deliverance and the grace and the, and the goodness of God than the Egyptians were. 
They were as morally corrupt and wicked as they were. As a matter of fact, if you remember the generation that he delivered, he had them wander in the, die in the wilderness for 40 years. They weren't even ready to become into the land. Why? They still had idolatry with them. You can remember the golden calves afterwards that they were ready to worship, which was supposedly an idolatrous representation of the God who delivered them, but it was bringing on these, these syncretism uh, from the, the gods of Egypt. They were evil people. They weren't any more righteous than the Egyptians. Why did God save them? He delivered them because of his covenant with Abraham. They were a covenant nation. And so that is important to understand. He delivered them because of his covenant with them. Uh, they did not in any way merit that or earn that covenant relationship. And then, however, he did take them out of the land of Egypt, through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, and he brought them to the land of Mount, or to Mount Sinai, and it was there that he entered into a national covenant with them, what we call the Mosaic Covenant. And there he established himself as the God of the nation, the nation who is a nation because of his covenant with Abraham. But this covenant that he entered into didn't establish a covenant relationship. This covenant was primarily focused on teaching them how they were to reflect his holiness in the world, how they were relate to him and to maintain their relationship with him in worship, and therefore receive not cursings but blessings. That was the idea of it. And so that was the covenant. And so he gives them this covenant from Mount Sinai, and he establishes the conditions of their relationship with him. The very core of this covenant or this law, however, that he gave to them was never mere outward or external obedience, external requirements. It had all of that. But what was the very core of this covenant? Deuteronomy 6.5. You remember it? Well, it begins in chapter 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one which could be a meta, uh, metaphysical statement in terms of his nature, as he's only one God, or that he is the primacy. Both, whatever, uh, are, are inherent in that. But the idea, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And then what does he say? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, with your everything. That is the core of the covenant. That's it. And David understood this, and the righteous uh, Israelite understood this, that they never related to God in terms of his covenant love for them. They never earned any more favor from God uh, by their obedience or some legal uh, uh, conforming to the Mosaic law. That was an expression of their love to him. The covenant was already established. His grace was already given to them. And so David understood this. Let me use him as an illustration. Even as the most, as the, let's just call him the representative of one of the righteous of Israel. He was an epitome of righteousness in the old covenant at that time in Israel. And yet he sinned very badly. And when he sinned, when he disobeyed God, when he had dishonored God and actually would bring reproach of the nations on Israel, and then he gives us his prayer of repentance in Psalm 51, what are the very first words out of his mouth? Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. In other words, I can only relate to you on the basis of this gracious covenant. I have failed in my part to uphold an obedient life 
But in my sin, I am not cut off. I'm actually drawn to this covenant-keeping God who is full of mercy and compassion and grace. And then he says later in this repentance, he says, you do not delight in sacrifices, otherwise I would give it. And then he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And then he says later, then you will delight in righteous sacrifices. In other words, it's not the sacrifice. It's not the mere conformity to some uh, external law. It's not the mere doing of something. The sacrifice, the obedience that brought pleasure to God was a broken and a contrite heart, was a heart that was humbled before him, that rested completely on his grace. And he says this beautiful statement, he says when in, in his experience of that as God restores and renews his heart, creates him in a clean heart, he says, and then I will teach sinners the way. I will teach others about this gracious God and how to walk in faithfulness. And then he celebrates that in Psalm 32. The point here is to say that the law, even in the Old Testament, was never this legalistic requirement of how one earned favor with God or kept themselves in a relationship with God. Now here it really gets to the point, this next part. So why that, is, that reality is true, that the law, uh, about the law, the law in the Old Testament did not come with the power to obey. And that's the distinction between the New Testament and the New Covenant, Old Testament and the Old Covenant. It didn't come with the indwelling Holy Spirit. It didn't come with union of Christ, with Christ. There was regeneration in the Old Testament, but the presence of God wasn't in each individual believer, as it's stated in the New Covenant, but he was in the temple. He was present there. The new glory of the new covenant is that the word and the commands of God come with the spirit and the ability to obey. That's what Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 6. Now that's important to note for this reason. That's why, one reason, the history of Israel then is fraught with their failure. For the first part of their history before the exiles, where the northern tribes went to Assyria and the southern tribes to Babylon... They were repeatedly snared by the sin of adopting the practices and symbols of their idolatrous neighbors, neighbors, vacillating between a complete rejection of the Mosaic law to some form of syncretism, which was just as sinful. And that was kind of their history until the exile. And then God sent them into exile, this, this, this very severe judgment. And he judged them and, and he took them out of the land and he took them over to a foreign nation and he destroyed the temple and then he brought them back into the land after the appointed period of time, 70 years. And then he brought them back into the land. And they never again, once they were back in the land, ultimately failed in the same way. There were some, some, some brushes with that in the Maccabean Revolt. Uh, which is another story, is, is a, was because of a, an opposition to idolatrous worship that was being forced into the temple, this, uh, this new temple, second temple. And so, they, but they never as a nation fell, in, fell, fell into that same kind of idolatrous worship of the symbols of their neighbors, that is the statues and all of those kind of things, and then their practices in the same way. However, they did end up falling again into idolatry. It was just another subtle form, a different form. And this is really getting down to the point that I want to make. In an effort to avoid their previous idolatry, there was within the history of Israel sort of a revival, and it was a word-centered revival. And there was this new commitment to the Scriptures because they had in a national consciousness of saying, I don't want to go through that again. 
And we need to get this fixed, right? We need to not be like Josiah who discovered the law after we were already in all of the sin. We need to pay attention to the law to avoid this kind of judgment of God in the future. And so there was this kind of resurgence of a care for the law of God. That's when the scribal class, actually, as those who protected the text of the scripture, came about what eventually would become the Masorites. They were called a different name back then, but the importance is, is that this became a focus of the nation of Israel. To know the law of God, to live by it as a nation, and to not fall again, once again, into idolatry. And so as they're with this renewed focus on the law of God, and this is where the rabbinical class and some of those came out of too that we introduced in the New Testament, then in this new focus, they said, well, we need to put hedges around the law. We need to make sure we don't break it. And so it, it consisted of these kind of discussions. God said, don't violate the Sabbath. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean, don't work on the Sabbath? He doesn't spell it out in the Old Testament. There's some things he does, but there's a lot that's left to understand. And so then it's when you had the rabbinical discussions and those kind of things, and you said, well, it's work if you travel this far from the house, but not if you travel this far, and here's other ways you can get off. You can kind of tie yourself off to this sort of post, and then you can go further, or you can wash and, you know, all of those kind of things. And so then you just get in this myriad of countless details about what does it mean then to obey different aspects of the law. And those became known then as the traditions, those were the traditions that Christ mentions when he comes in there, into the New Testament. And what happened, and why that became another form of idolatry, is why they didn't fall into those sort of symbols of the nations in terms of their statutes and those kind of things. They replaced it, essentially, with an idolatry of their own self-righteousness. That's what it was. And that's what he confronted them with continually. They had replaced one sin with another and they had become just as far away from God. As a matter of fact, just as a footnote, the parable Jesus gave of the seven demons that went out and came back and they found the house clean and swept and in order, but empty. And then they all went in and remember? And the last state became worse than the first state. In other words, it's essentially it's like, look, you're even worse now with your self-righteousness than you were with your little Baal statues. Because it's, it's much harder to detect. And that's really where we're getting to next week. How do we detect it? But let me just make a couple of comments uh, here, just very, very briefly. In their effort to protect Scripture, they ended up devaluing Scripture and demoting it. And so you remember Jesus said in Matthew 15, through your traditions, you invalidate the Word of God. And he gave an example to them about how they treated money and how they would honor their parents and so forth. But the idea is there that your traditions have invalidated the word of God because what they did is they took the law of God, which was meant to humble them and lead them, as with David and other righteous saints, with a broken and a contrite to him, trusting in his provision of grace and the sacrifices and the priesthood and the temple and to live, and, as Micah said, and to walk humbly with our God. They instead made it these, with their traditions, the law something attainable, something they could do, although they never really did, which was, they didn't. But they thought they did in their mind, and so they created their own righteousness. It wasn't the righteousness that the law called for. It was a righteousness of their own, and that's what he's addressing. And that is, at the very heart of legalism, instead of protecting the commands, they actually made it something less and deluded themselves. 
As a matter of fact, they wanted to do that. Some believing Pharisees, you remember in Acts 15, there's other places, let me just mention that. And, and part of Peter's address to them is he says, you want to lay a yoke on these Gentiles that neither we or our forefathers have ever been able to bear. You want to lay law on them. It's not law, he says, but we believe that we're saved in the same way as they are through faith in Jesus Christ. And that you can't put these burdens on them. So this idolatrous self-righteousness that Jesus continually exposed and confronted by calling them back to the heart of the law. So what was at the heart in Matthew and the Gospels? Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? Because they had, I think it was 513, I could be wrong on that number, but I think it was 513 different commandments and they separated them, which were greater and lesser, and they had a whole system. And so that's behind his question. And what does Jesus respond to him? This is the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then what does, what, what does he say? On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. That's the very heart of it. You're lost in all of this traditions. You're lost in all of this condemnation of others. You're lost in this self-confidence and your righteousness. And you've missed the point, the love of God. And as a matter of fact, and I do have to mention this verse because it's so crucial here. He says this to them in John chapter 5. He says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it's these that testify about me. You are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. I don't receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God within yourself. You don't. And instead of then of receiving glory from the one and only true God, he says you receive glory of some, uh, from each other. If someone comes in their own name, you'll receive them. But here I'm coming as your very God and you don't receive me. Why? Because you don't love God. You love the system. You love the self-glory that you've created among yourselves. You love the self-righteous legalistic system. But you don't actually love God. And in fact, they were, separate. He, they were condemned for that. And so there were seemingly com those who were committed to the name of God, the study of God, the service of God, and yet in all of that, they missed God. They missed him. And that's the real issue of legalism. Legalism at its very heart then has a distorted view of God, a distorted view of God. In all of its form, legalism doesn't understand who God is and it doesn't understand self in terms of sin and it doesn't understand the nature of grace. Well... We'll have to pick it up from there. But here's what I would just want to leave us with is this. Is that as we're coming in to understand what it means to be saved and, and how do we discern between legalism and a true love for God. One is to understand that legalism is at its very heart rooted in a self-righteousness. A legal spirit out of that self-righteousness relates to God simply on the basis of performance. Whether that's theological or somebody's resting in their salvation or whether it's just in how they relate to God a genuine Christian in their life. It's relating to God based on what I do, not what on God has done for me in Christ. His love is the foundation of our obedience to him. Our obedience is not the cause for his love and that's profound to get. So that's one thing. Two is to understand this, that the nature of sanctification, the work of the Spirit in our lives, is not a matter of simply doing more of one thing and less of another. 
that should be evident, absolutely. But the core of sanctification, the core of the work of the Spirit is being conformed to the image of Christ, to the character of Christ, to the attitude of Christ. It is not just that we do less sinful things outside, it is that we love sin less on the inside and we love holiness more. That holiness without which no one will see the Lord And so as we look within our hearts, as we will later look at how to discern that in some practical ways, um, we first should look and say and seek from the Lord, am I growing in Christ? Am I growing in my love for him? Am I growing in my love for the truth? Am I growing in my desire to spend time with him? Am I growing in my desire to walk with him in obedience? Is the sin that I'm struggling with because I'm trying to do it in my flesh through a legal attitude or is it because I'm asking him to kill the love for that sin by increasing my love for him and seeing his grace, seeing his glory, laying hold of the magnificence of his mercy to us. That's what it means to walk with Christ. So we'll, like I said, pick it up from there and look more practically uh, next week. But let me pray. Father, thank you for grace. You're... Your word is a testimony of your grace to us, your grace to sinners. And Lord, it is that grace that overwhelms our hearts when we see it that makes us want in every way to offer our lives to you to be pleasing to you. And so as we think about growing, as we think about growing in holiness, we pray together that you would reveal to us your glory in Christ, that he would be exalted and magnified in our heart and become larger and larger and more and more glorious and that we would be more and more in tune to your glory in Christ and walking with you in true obedience and faith. And if there's any here who are outside of you, may you convict them and bring them to Christ even today. And it's in your matchless name we pray, Lord Jesus, amen.